1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm I'm an instructor at McMaster University. I am here today with Mary Beth Meehan and Fred Turner to speak about their new book, Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside a Fraying America. Mary Beth and Fred, thank you both so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having us, Matthew.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Matthew. Well, uh, this is uh, quite a bit different than some of the other books that I have spoken to the authors of or done interviews for, because this is largely a book of photography, um, photographs of people and places and things in uh, and around Silicon Valley. Um, I guess my first question, uh, Mary Beth, maybe we can, we can start with you. Uh, what was the idea behind this book? How did you conceive of this particular project?
0: Well, I actually would love to hear Fred talk about that only because (laughs) it was his idea and he was cooking on it before he and I ever met. And when he reached out and invited me to come to Silicon Valley, it was it was just such an amazing opportunity. But I think, Fred, why don't you talk about the origin story of this project?
2: Sure, sure. So I've lived in Silicon Valley for about 20 years and, you know, I've written a lot about the mythology of the valley And I've been struck by the differences between the mythology of the valley, you know, a place where amazing geniuses, mostly young men, mostly white, somehow cook up these incredible technologies. And then the actual fact of the place, which is incredibly diverse, wildly unequal, and and very much a kind of community. And I've been wanting to kind of figure out a way to make the community here on the ground visible. And I've always loved photography. I had a small grant that I could use for the purpose and uh, with the help of a, a friend named Elodie Malay, I was able to, to find Mary Beth's work, and it was it was just exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to be connected with. And and, and I, you know, Mary Beth will talk about her own work, but but you know, she's done these amazing um, large scale community based portraiture projects in working class towns in the east, in the south, and I thought that the way that she looked at people, the way that she saw them as people, but also as parts of a social structure. Was exactly the kind of thing that I was hoping to make visible in, in Silicon Valley, and you know, it, 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 once we were talking to one another, the, the project just sort of became a totally joint enterprise, and it's,
1: it's it's pretty much completely collaborative from there. That's fantastic. And so you got in touch. So you were familiar with uh, Mary Beth's work already, and and so Mary Beth, when you got the call uh, from Fred wanting to uh, document. Uh, Silicon Valley, in particular, what was that like for you and, and did you did you have any i guess relationship with this geography uh, before, or was this kind of new learning for you
0: right so not only did I have no relationship with Silicon Valley, but I think I held the same views of it that everyone else in the world holds, which is that it 's these white billionaires who are you know making things happen and that the money's trickling down i mean I had read we you know some of the inequities and problems in silicon valley have started to come out in the press in the last few years but i was as sort of bowled over by the image as anybody else might be to think about silicon valley as an actual place i couldn't i couldn't visualize it at all as an actual place and in fact my first reaction was you know what is it that i'm going to be able to contribute here <laughs> and So, you know, but to get there and to realize that, as Fred said, you know, I've been working on these community-based projects for a long time, beginning in New England, which is where I'm from. Um, where, you know, the layers of immigration are something that I understand really well here in New England, having grown up with it. And uh, then having worked in the South, where I'm trying to look at that community in Georgia as an ecosystem with everybody interconnected, all impressed upon by history, but also living together in the present moment. I realized that I could take those approaches and look at Silicon Valley in the same kind of way as a human, who's the human community to ask that question and to use the camera and conversations and interviews to really look at it in that kind of way and set aside these myths and see where the myths met up with reality. And there was quite a big discrepancy. As soon as I got started, it was clear. Fred, maybe you could
1: say a bit about how those myths about Silicon Valley came into existence in the first place. Maybe give us a, a potted history of <laughs> the, the region and kind of how it came to be understood the way it is now. Sure. So, so
2: the, the region as such is, is a strange one. Um, it's part of the American frontier. It's from the West. It was originally Mexico. It was populated for thousands of years by Ohlone and other native populations who were systematically wiped out first by Spanish settlers and then by Americans, Yankees brought in from the east. And the, the region that we call Silicon Valley is, is in fact a valley surrounded by mountains with uh, San Francisco on the north and San Jose on the south, um, several million people. And the, the valley used to be you know farms. It used to be just just trees and, and, and farms for a long time. It was called the Valley of Heart's Delight. But it was also a place where tech industries, mostly industrial um, companies connected to the defense world, Um, were burgeoning, especially after World War II. In any case, um, by the early 70s, this was the place where the semiconductor was being built, where small laptops were going to be built, small personal computers. And alongside that, of course, was the rise of the American counterculture. And so this became a place that had a weird mix of technological development and inspiration and, and hope and utopian idealism. One of the things that I think Mary Beth and I have thought a lot about is how the utopian idealism that infects the valley today has very deep American roots. You know, I've come to think of Silicon Valley almost as um, a a sort of city on a hill for our time. You remember the the famous Puritan city on a hill is a place where Winthrop, the the minister, Puritan minister says to his people, we shall be as a city upon a hill and the world will, will look at us, will be a beacon to the world. Well, you know, in some ways, Silicon Valley is busy being a beacon to the world. And the light that it's shining is, 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 is not necessarily ideal. You know, in the same way that the early Puritan communities were uh, segregated by race, um, that there was sort of an elect group that was thought to be going to heaven and another group that wasn't, Silicon Valley is very clearly divided. And there's a logic that comes to us into this place, into the mythology, literally from the 17th century in New England. It's so deeply American, we don't even see it. And it's the logic of, I have to go to theology here for a second, Predestination. So when the when the Puritans arrive here in the 17th century, and I appreciate you indulging me on this point, they, they believe that God has decided who's going to go to heaven. From the moment you're born, you're either going to heaven or you're not. But they also believe that God will try to reveal who's going to heaven on this earth by helping you become rich. So you seek very hard to get wealthy as a sign of your election to heaven. And the wealth that you accumulate in turn becomes an, em- an emblem of your sainthood. That logic is just all over Silicon Valley. When we see the coverage of Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, especially a few years back before the tech, the tech latch really hit, what we see, I think, is a remnant of that old Puritan ideology that there is somehow a kind of process of election going on and that Silicon Valley is a magical, almost holy place in which technology is the context in which we reinvent ourselves and in which saints among us are revealed by their wealth. And that's the ideology that I think is so disturbing. Justice for the Puritans, that ideology obscured and, and made it possible to act against Native Americans, to act against people who are not religious. That ideology here in Silicon Valley obscures what the tech world was actually doing in the way of building communities, the kinds of discrimination that are here, the kinds of inequality that are here. and And, and so we needed to undermine it. And to do that, we really need to help people literally see the valley literally see the people there and that's why photography and mary best work in particular is so important
0: in the mythology that i was really kind of pushing against um in addition to everything fred is saying about the you know the valley's elect is this mythology that that the american economy is strong and that all boats will will float and so if not only the country, but the world is looking to Silicon Valley as this model for how econo- what economic success looks like, all we have to do is look at the workers within that system and the pressures that they're actually under to see that that economy is not functioning as it advertises itself to be functioning. So that was clear from the moment I got there, that the money that's being generated there is not alleviating pressure on workers upon whom the whole ecosystem de- depends. In fact, the economy as it's being run is increasing uh, increasing pressure on workers and making life less sustainable, not more. And again, this all came out through conversations with Fred and just through being on the ground and talking to people over the six weeks.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me when Mary Beth arrived, actually, and we started, so we would have these weekly dinners and they were completely wonderful. Um, and you know, one of the things that surprised me, Mary Beth, we've talked about this a little bit, was that you know, as you started meeting people in the valley, and you'd meet them in all all classes and all levels. You know, we, we we have working folks, we have homeless folks, we have folks who are who are executives and entrepreneurs. Those, all of those folks, had a kind of anxiety that you kept finding, and, and it had become kind of invisible to me because I've lived here so long. But it was instantly apparent to you.
0: Yeah, that's true. And and the thing, Matthew, that's been really gratifying about this book is, for the most part the feedback we've been getting is that people are saying that the book has somehow materialized that anxiety or that kind of unease that's palpable in the Valley, but that isn't exactly named, you know, that we've sort of put it in this object that you can hold in your hand and kind of, and kind of contemplate.
1: And, and, And what, what is that anxiety about? Because you said, you mentioned that it's not just the working class people or the homeless people that are experiencing this. It seems That everyone at all rungs of the economic ladder are worried in a constant state of unease. And I felt that myself. Um, um, I'd love to hear you describe that because it it definitely relates to my, my own experience too.
0: Well, I mean, I think, you know, it would, be, it would be naive to dismiss these companies altogether and to say that they're not helping to generate wealth and then they're not putting a lot of people to work. So I don't think that the answer is for them to disappear. But the way the, way the wealth distribution is managed, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the mid-level engineer who's making six figures, but who's living in an environment where the housing costs are through the roof, for example... Or the mid-level engineer who feels I can't really go on vacation because there's so much pressure uh, for my job. There's so much competition for my position that, um, you know, I feel I feel uneasy about that. Or someone who is, you know, like Richard in the book, who I met, who had worked in the auto industry all his life and had made six figures uh, uh, up as recently as 10 years ago, goes back to the same plant that he had worked for when he was working for GM, but now for Tesla, and is now making 40 something thousand dollars a year and can't afford a vacation, can't afford a camping trip, can't afford a cooler of beer. So he sees not only his own standard of living going down in the same industry as these corporations are becoming wealthier. But he sees these young, young workers coming in who don't have 20 years, the economy of 20 years ago to compare that their quality of life to, who are suffering, but who are sticking with it because they see that as their only option.
2: And, and this, is, this is, I think, the, the, the real power, Mary Beth, of that, of that image and of some of the others in the book. The, the mythology says that we're going to build these kind of invisible digital systems. They're going to be tremendously efficient. They're going to be Um, everywhere, and their rationality, their efficiency, their their glorious accessibility will help everybody work more easily together and, and, and as you say, raise all boats. And as soon as you start looking at the bodies of the people who actually live and work around these systems, like Richard, you see that what's actually going on is that folks at the top are using these systems to extract resources from folks further down the line. And, and, and it, it's having a terribly pernicious effect on the organization of our society. You know, I think Mary Beth and I would agree that Silicon Valley is a microcosm of what America is becoming. And if that's the case, we should be very
0: concerned. And that's really why we are so driven to get the book done. The more we realize that it wasn't just let's look at this little case study as an oddity or you know as 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 an as as an entity in of itself but that it's this real harbinger of where the country is headed and it's it's emblematic of what's going to happen if we keep going i mean you know i did that i did a six week residency in 2017 and then i went back to do some more photography and reporting in 2019 and the people i talked to said, it's getting worse. It's actually getting worse. So Matthew, I guess I'm curious about how you would compare it to what you were thinking in terms of your experience.
1: Yeah, no, this this is all uh, very interesting. Uh, so maybe to give a bit of my own background here, I came to Silicon Valley for the first time in, in 2018 to participate in a uh, a tech fellowship. I don't really work in tech, but I, I, I studied, I was studying, I was doing a, a master's degree in the history of science at Oxford, where I was, was studying the history of computing. Um, and so I came to, I kind of wanted to see, you know, one, the source or one of many of the sources that that is obviously important in the history of computing. Um, and so I, I came to uh, San Francisco and spent some time around Stanford and I am Fred, you described having lived in this area for so long. Some of these, um, some of some of the features, you know, it becomes like this is water. You know, you 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 fail to recognize that you're kind of swimming in uh, this situation all the time, and, and that's obviously what what Mary Beth's perspective uh, added. But I kind of, especially as a Canadian. Um, and someone who has not spent any time in this in this uh, much time in, in Silicon Valley or indeed much time in the United States at all was just immediately struck by the amount of inequality, that like complete uh, kind of stratification of like bifurcation of society into the uber-taking you know 23-year-old uh, you know software engineers who I was there to hang out with, and you know the even just the state of public transportation in, in San Francisco and in other parts of the city. I, you know, um, immediately it, there was kind of this uh, an uncanny valley to use. That, I mean, to use that term that is also the name of a memoir that uh, you might have read that I really like that is also kind of ev- evokes a similar feeling of, of, of Silicon Valley. Um, this uncanny valley of this. Um, I, I don't know this 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 strange kind of class system happening that is like you're describing, but also this anxiety among even the young people I knew, as you were saying, Mary Beth, where. No amount of success was successful enough, right? These were people who, by any definition, were among the the elite, the, the wealthy, right? If they had taken their earnings that they were making at the tech companies they were working for and moved to the cities I was used to living in, <laughs> driving Teslas, they would be, you know, immediately seen as like uh, as the super rich. But you know, no amount of super rich. There's kind of this 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 stress that it's that it that it's never enough, um, and so. You know, I, I kind of had a very uh, exciting week. I met a lot of amazing people, experienced a lot of culture. Um, obviously, the geography of the, the Bay Area is is gorgeous, uh, but also came away with this kind of eerie sense of something you know, Something doesn't uh, feel right here. And I think that's, for me, and, and probably for many other people reading this book, that, that, that's kind of the feeling um, um, that was captured. Mary Beth, does that resonate with your kind of experience uh, when you when you showed up in um... 2017?
0: Totally. That eerie, <laughs> I love the way you put it, the eerie sense that there's something not right here. And I mean, you know, and it's funny, because as I, I wrote about in the afterward, you know, my roots are in working class immigrant New England. I mean, my, my grandparents and great grandparents are all Western European immigrants to the shoe factories of, of industrial New England. And You know, I never, it didn't occur to me leaving here to come and do this project that what I knew about those communities would come to bear on how I understood Silicon Valley. But what I realized was there there had been a kind of an economic model that was in play in the United States where working people, unskilled laborers, non-English speaking immigrants, could create stability and wealth and community, a physical sense of community, interpersonal relationships on the ground, in the spaces in which they live that created a kind of existential health for them. And that those, those ineffable, those ineffable qualities of what is community, what is society, what are social links? How do we, how do we, how do our bodies and our minds feel happy and healthy because we're connected to the people around us? We walk to work with our friends and we walk home and we go to church and the cops know our kids and the teachers live in town. I mean, I, 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 Fred and I laugh, I mean, it sounds a little bit like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but all of those, all of those things have been stripped out of all of those communities in Silicon Valley. I, I want so, ju-
2: no, yeah, no, I, I to jump on this, I, I completely agree. And I think that what's interesting uh, in this analysis is that community is something that the tech companies are promising to build us through their technologies. They are saying, "Oh, mm-hmm. you know, no, you know, alienated. Don't worry about it. Come on, Facebook. Your friends will be there." And meantime, the, they are in fact the ones who are building out the alienation. But the story goes even deeper, and it, this is what really, really sort of fascinates me and terrifies me. This, this, underneath that, we're going to build commercial community because your your living community is actually something we're taking apart. Is an, is a deeper fantasy. It's a highly individualistic American fantasy. That at the end of the day, we are all alone before God. We are walking around on this earth being tested. This is the old Puritan ideology. We're being tested. It's all an individual story. It's about what's inside us. You need to find what's unique to you and, and make that work. And what you end up with in that vision is a kind of atomized society in which each person is looking to find out, am I saved? Am I fallen? Am I saved? Am I fallen? Am I going up or am I going down? And in Silicon Valley, that question plays out economically and technologically.
0: Well, right.
2: And so that's that's the rub, right? The mythology isn't just an idea floating around in space. It's it's actually something that you can live in relation to your car, in relation to your job, and you can see very quickly as soon as you leave the world of of you know sort of personal testing that, gosh, you know, there's no way to pass.
0: Right. And the and this idea that this idea that. Um, this idea that the corporations and the way it's all the way it's all rolling out in Silicon Valley, that there's a kind of cover, there's a kind of critical cover in this notion that they're making, you know, people closer across the world or that the money's trickling down or, you know, that, that, that these, that these, that these, that they're actually going after technological advancements to make people healthier and to make society healthier. When in fact, it's really just not what the motivation seems to be. It just, it does, it seems to be about the money in ways that um, are destructive overall.
1: One question that that um, this discussion brings up for me, and Fred, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, was the relationship between uh, these particular issues that have to do with uh, tech companies in Silicon Valley and just the broader forces of, I don't know, the the gigification of society or neoliberal economics or the like broader forces that are happening across um, all of the United States and indeed in in much of the world, how much of the the, the issues that we're talking about are unique to um, this particular region and this particular workforce? And how much of it is just a manifestation of, like you said, where the country is going? I guess another way of framing it is, is the country going this way because Silicon Valley is creating it, or is the country going that way due to some broader you know, macroeconomic force, and Silicon Valley just happens to be the place where it is like <laughs> the most ladder. manifested?
0: It's the latter. And I'm so glad you brought up <laughs> neoliberalism, Matthew, because Fred told me to stop bringing it up. <laughs> but that, in my opinion, it's the latter and the neoliberal cover for for it is part of the problem. It's part of why we're not seeing it for what it is. But Fred, what do you think?
2: Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I broadly agree. I, I do think we have to be careful though not to use the word neoliberalism to cover a multitude of sins. You know, I, I think that Silicon Valley in particular has this has this loop, and this is something I'm writing about now and I'm really interested in it. It's a loop where in order to make money, it has to atomize its users. And that's the thing, right? You want to atomize, then make people be social together, then track and monitor what they're doing um, and, and resell the data so as to influence their activity in ways that tends to isolate them more. So Silicon Valley and the companies in it promise to, to offer us socialization engines, but they in fact produce individuation engines. And that accords really well with neoliberal economic theory. And, and in fact, if you go back into the deeper history, it's a longer story. The, the, the roots of neoliberal economics and the roots of computational theory are, are, are entwined. It's a long story. But, but you know, so, so I think that makes a lot of sense. I just want to be careful. So, And I think... This process is going on across the country and in other parts of the world as well. So I, Mary Beth is absolutely right about that. What I want to be careful not to do, though, is blame the, the the generation of Reagan and Thatcher alone and the neoliberal economists like Hayek alone for where we are. There are a lot of interested parties in the mix. And and the, the parties out here, and this is what I think is one of the challenges, are you know the, the people who run Silicon Valley, who work at Facebook, who work at Google, they're really cool. They're really smart. They're really fun they you know, and it, it, it's sort of hard to see that, like, wait a minute, I was trained that rapacious capitalists, you know, looked like Carnegie or Ford and, you know, yeah, and they, they sat in these filthy towers and watched while the oil came out of the ground and ruined the houses of the people who lived down the valley. <laughs> you know, we have rapacious capitalists here, but they were really nice, you know, prana clothes. Um, they drive great mm-hmm. cars. They're, they're sensitive to electric cars. Um, You know, they drive through a landscape that is green and beautiful and yet one of the most polluted landscapes in all of America. You know, that's the world we inhabit. And so what we've got to do is start calling out what's underneath that and start stop misrecognizing the kind of individualistic styles of these folks for a kind of actual cool future and start seeing them in turn as actual modes of neoliberal capitalist domination.
0: Yeah, that's right. Right on. A lot of the book,
1: oh, sorry, go ahead, Mary Beth.
0: Well, no, and I guess I just want to say that we get all, we can get high up into all this theory, but all you have to do is walk around Redwood City and Palo Alto and you, and it's there and talk to people, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not hidden. As soon as people start talking about what life is like there, that's where the book came from is walking and talking to those people and doing the research, but mostly being in people's homes and hearing them talk about what life is like in that space. And I want to say
2: that that's one of the great, that's one of the things that I love about your work, Mary Beth, is the way that you completely violate the Silicon Valley notion that we should communicate through technology. uh You know, I mean, uh, you know, Matthew, the the book is filled with, you know, images and conversations that Mary Beth has made in collaboration with the people that she was meeting and that you feel that collaboration all through the book. And it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, a resonating alternative to the kind of information driven connection you can get on a, on a Facebook system. It's two people talking, It's not, you know, two voices in cyberspace.
1: Right. Mary Beth, maybe this would be a good time to ask specifically about the images that are, the photographs rather, that are here. I don't know all that much about, uh, you know, um, photographs of individual subjects or uh, portraits. How do you go about meeting these people, speaking with them, introducing yourself, getting them to agree to be a part of a book project like this? (laughs) What is that process like? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's a, such a funny question because i mean you know before i started the before i started the project fred had sent me all of these books just exactly as we were just trying to talk about you know all of these books about silicon valley and the devil and the what was that one called fred the devil and the anyway oh, they're I, all I forget yeah i forget. Theoretical books about the valley and then Again, it was just, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into an Airbnb, I've got six weeks in front of me, and my job is to somehow absorb it through interactions with people. So, Matthew, it was a mix of, you know, getting in touch with an organization like Silicon Valley Rising that does a lot of work for workers in the valley, you know, pay uh, the minimum, raising the minimum wage and all of that and housing, but who could introduce me to people who were workers turned activists that she knew that could, um, that they knew that, you know, that might want to be part of a project. So sometimes my avenue to people who ended up in the book were was through an organization like Silicon Valley Rising. Sometimes like Imelda, I'm coming out of my Airbnb and Imelda and her friend are coming out of a house across the street with a mop and a bucket. And they'd obviously just been cleaning the house. And I introduced myself to them in Spanish. And It's very simple. I just say, my name is Mary Beth Meehan. I'm working on a project with a professor at Stanford. And our goal is to really find out what life is like for people here. And I mean, that's pretty simple. And people all, everybody knows what life is like for them. And then it's their choice about whether they want to go into their relationship with me to sort of describe it to me. You know, most of these interactions were uh, many hours interviewed, uh, interviews, conversations until I sort of understood where the person was coming from, or kind of, as Fred said, you know, I'm always balancing who the individual is with the kind of larger ecosystem of the space. So I wanted the the portfolio of, of portraits in the book to be representative of the community in a way that people who live there would feel like these were their neighbors. But then everybody needs to be their own individual and not be pigeonholed or typecast into a role to fulfill our version of the book. So it was always that kind of balancing act between doing the research and saying, you know, I haven't covered East Palo Alto here or, you know, I really part of going back in 2019 was that I hadn't represented a service worker like a teacher, a community, a community servant. I mean, like a teacher or a fireman who who wanted to serve Silicon Valley, but who had to commute two hours to get to home because he or she couldn't afford to live there. So it was a mix of running, chasing down people on the street, you know, but that that always sounds crazy to, to people. But I mean, that's kind of what I've been doing for 25 years, Matthew, is saying, oh, my God, I want to dying to make a portrait of that person. You know, that's why photography is my way in photography and these interviews. I hope that answers your question. It's always just sort of a toggling back and forth. Who am I going to, who am I going to meet today? And what are they going to tell me? I guess there's that open-endedness about the process that I love.
1: Mm -hmm. It's it's fantastic. And I think that, you know, um, (laughs) things like, uh, I don't know, humans of New York, I think that really opened people's eyes to like, you can really just learn a lot about a person through a single photograph and then (laughs) a a short story. It speaks, it speaks volumes and just appreciating that for you, that process is, you know, um, you, you you have to really be just like the height of sociability or intrigue or like you're really just like a social detective always oh, you know, having your the ears height and of what? eyes out. What did
0: you say?
1: I was going to say uh, sociability and you know you you need to be a person who is approachable mm. and who is curious about people and who kind of is all you're you're a detective of sorts like always uh, you know got your ears and eyes out for 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 pe- interesting people or interesting things happening uh, around you. One. Thing that I did want to um, pick up on that was a really common theme in the book that that for some listeners might not be uh, apparent is um, uh, you mentioned the commute, Mary Beth, that a lot of these workers have. The price of housing is a is a definitely a recurring theme. We're talking about places like Palo Alto, Mountain View, Redwoods, uh, you know, uh, San Francisco itself. Fred, maybe could you just quickly describe? We 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 haven't really mentioned this. Where exact What is Silicon Valley geographically? I mean, you you're at Stanford University. Where is that relative to uh, other parts of the Bay Area? And how you know how is kind of the affluence divided among these different places, etc.
2: Sure. Okay. So I'll try to do a brief a brief geography. So we have a Central Valley um, with the Bay on one side, San Francisco Bay on one side, and the Santa Cruz Mountains on the other. And, and on the other side of the Santa Cruz Mountains, the ocean. And then up north, we have San Francisco, south San Jose. Um, it's a flat region and it's pretty dense. Um, it's suburban largely, but but really quite dense. There isn't a lot of room for new building. And this means that people who work here and, and tens of thousands of people commute in during, during every working day, at least before the pandemic, the people who work here have to come from other lower cost cities across the bay. So they drive across bridges, they drive down from the north, they drive up from San Jose and from cities south of San Jose. And the the way that the wealth works is the wealth tends to be concentrated in the valley, um, or in the hills. The very very wealthy folks live live up in the hills, um, and it tends to be clustered in in around different sort of industrial centers. So so there'll be you know um, where Yahoo has been, there, there will be a series of. of um, Industries connected to search, uh, where Google is now, Mountain View, where I live, um, there'll be, be connections to search. The the wealth here, though, is, is off the charts, as is the poverty. So in 2018, there was a study that showed that there were more than 70 billionaires, with a B, in this valley. Okay. Meantime, at that same time, about 15% of families were unable to get secure food. During the pandemic, recent studies have shown that 40%, four in ten, Families in Silicon Valley do not have enough to eat on any given day of the week. That's an obscenity. It's simply astonishing. Now, you see that very concretely at Stanford. So I, I sit in a beautiful old building, lovely brick, made in the 1890s, and out my window, I see the other lovely brick building where, where the Google algorithms were actually written. It um, used to be the computer science department. It was the foundation of the company. When I ride my bicycle home and I leave campus, I leave the sort of green lawns and the red roofs and, and, and the sort of calm, um, you know, almost aristocratic beauty of the place, I bike past an entire ring of broken down trailers, um, cars, parked all along the edges of campus. And these are folks who are living there uh, because they can't afford housing, more normally, more normal housing. They're often working folks, as Mary Beth's research has shown. They're, they're not just homeless folks, they're, they're, they're working folks. They're all different ethnicities. They have all different professions. We have you know, former Stanford students living there. And you see that inequality a lot. And to, to live here and to be untroubled by that, you have to literally unsee it. You have to have to not see it. And I think one of our hopes for this project was to, 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 to really help folks see it. You know, we gave a talk um, uh, online for, for folks in the Valley and one of the first questions we got, which really surprised me was, wait a minute, I've lived in the Valley since 1983 and I haven't seen any of this. You Remember that, Mary Beth?
0: No, what she said was, why am I not seeing it? It wasn't that she was telling us oh. we were wrong. It was that she was, telling us that we were right, but that she hadn't seen it.
2: Right. And so so this this this, this feature of not seeing is, is I, I just find it fascinating because I do also think this is an American affliction right now. I, I think that, you know, particularly on, on the left where I live, a lot of us are very busy not seeing the conditions that would produce angry rural voters, uh, you know, and we're busy not seeing each other as people. One, one of the things that Mary Beth was saying earlier that I think is absolutely critical is that to, to get past the kind of inequality that we have, we have to stop seeing each other as sort of emblems and signs and representatives of tribes. We have to start seeing ourselves as people like other people. And the, the beauty of Marybeth's method, I think, is that you know, she gets up close with actual people and they and demands that they see her as a person and, and ask to see them as a person. And this, this, this sense of mutual witnessing is, I think, key to the kind of America we could become and the kind of America we've been at different times. And it's exactly what the technology industry builds against. When I'm on Facebook, I am not seen. I am busy projecting, presenting, performing. Facebook is theater. You know, the, the, the landscape here where we live is real life. It's, it's dirt, it's houses, it's cars, it's bodies. We've got to start seeing our world in those terms. Otherwise, we're going to be sort of smothered by this mythology of individual achievement and election and, you know, disembodied whiteness.
0: You know, there's another level to, to the technology, you know, and again, back to, back to Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I told told Fred that before COVID, I had never heard of people having their groceries delivered. You know, I mean, unless you had had just had a baby or you were an elderly person here in Providence, I mean, it's happening now. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. It's happening now where, um, you know, since COVID people are having their groceries delivered, but those groceries are being delivered by people, but we don't have to interact with them. The groceries appear at our, at our doorstep. And I remember someone in Silicon Valley saying, we don't go to the grocery store, you know, I mean, and and so all of these essential errands, you know, the kinds of, of just physical upkeep that one can automate through technology in Silicon Valley, I think, you know, to your to your question, it sounded like you were asking if the wealth and the poverty were somehow in separate physical geographic areas. And, and, and I think part of the unease maybe that you felt, definitely that I felt, is that the wealth and the poverty are completely interwoven. It's just that there are people who have the money or who are employing the technology to remove themselves from any kind of interaction with the poverty. In fact, someone, it was, when I was leaving, you know, there's that lovely little strip. In Mountain View, where all the nice restaurants are, and there's that lovely strip in Palo Alto. You can go to those, as someone said to me, it's getting so we're getting so uneasy in Silicon Valley because it's getting to be the case where you really don't know your waitress in one of these lovely little bars in Silicon in Mountain View could be could be homeless. You don't know. It's it's so it's so um, interwoven now into the fabric. The person if you have to go to Target for something, I mean, who goes to Target anymore? They order it on Amazon. But I went to Target because I was on my on feet on foot. And that's the other thing. I wasn't there to conduct my life. I was there to interrupt other people's lives with my presence and my question and, and my questions. And so I think when you're conducting your life in Silicon Valley, it's very easy to not have to interact with the salesperson at Target who may be living three families to an apartment, three blocks away. Yeah, you know, I, mean, the, I hope that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I <laughs> think it does. America, I also want to say that I think that that and that amplifies the, the sort of inward individualism of, of elites you know so so if you don't have to encounter people who are different than you then you don't get a chance to feel like them or in the same community and the world looks ever more like a, a challenge to you to achieve distinction to achieve difference to, to to be able to pull out and build your own little micro bubble and 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 and, and that's and, and that's not how I think we want our country to be. And it's certainly not how I want to live my life. You know, I, I love going back to Providence. I've spent some time in Providence as well. And Providence is a, is a city built on 18th and 19th century lines. And as Mary Beth has pointed out to me, you know, it's a place where you do meet your, your local neighbors. You can't help it. The, the, the buildings are built that way. Now yeah, here, you hop in the car. It's much harder to, 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 mm-hmm. to see folks. Anyways. Well, yeah, but mean,
0: again, this,
1: Matthew, this time... I'm just,
0: oh, sorry.
1: Okay, go... No, no, please, please go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say that Ma- Matthew, I'm just I'm I'm happy to know that what we're saying is ringing true is ringing true for you. I mean, I think as I said before, that's been that's been the best sort of um, feeling of satisfaction is that you know when you make something that's about a place or about people, you want the people who, for whom it, it, it you know who, who it affects to to feel that you've gotten it right. And I think the fact that people are telling us that this book has captured something intangible that's been on their minds or that they've felt um, is really it just feels like we're on the right track. And and I'm just really glad.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different aspects of it. One that one that. I, I love this. You, you talked about seeing, right? And you were talking about the method of really seeing people eye to eye and coming face to face and having that experience that photography can, can you know, capture so well with these people's stories. Um, even the title seeing Silicon Valley, it's really interesting because even when I first showed up, I landed by plane and then took the subway to, to, to where I needed to go. <laughs> and the, the, the people I was staying with were like, you know, when your Uber arrives, you know, uh, do you have an ETA for the Uber? I was like, I'm I'm not taking the Uber, you know, what do you, am I made of money? I can't take an Uber from the, you know, this one hour drive from the airport to where I'm staying. I'm going to take the, but then I realized that if your entire experience of a city is taking place, you know, mediated by an Uber driver who you never speak to, um, you know, shuttling from place to place, never taking public transportation, never going grocery shopping, you might yeah, you, it's like the person you described who, you know, this is going on all around me, but why am I not seeing it? It's well, it's, the, you know, the whole city is designed, right, as, as uh, which is similar to what you mentioned, Fred, to, to ensure that you never, uh, you know, see kind of these conditions of inequality. But even, you know, visiting a lot of these uh, corporations and, and firms, what you notice is that the people working there behave as though the engineers are the only people or, or the management are the only people working there. When in reality, this book is filled of pictures of security guards, food workers, you know, people who are uh, janitors who are like working in these companies um, for whom uh, even people working in a restaurant, there's one photo of someone who works in a restaurant and, and, you know, the tech people come in at lunch and then talk about their business and then quickly eat and then ignore her and, and then, and then leave. There's kind of this it, it, if you kind of just, uh, yeah, it almost gives me like a people, a people's history, you know, a people's history of Silicon Valley. Like if you just looked at, if, if we take off the, I don't know, myopic lens of like the people who I am similar to, namely like people with graduate degrees in you know computer science or whatever, you realize that uh, there's a whole lot of other uh, other activity going on. Um, and and I think that that is the thing that is captured in this book. <laughs> not to, can, not to, can uh, I jump in on this one? To... That's what it really did for me. Yeah, please, please.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I'm really struck that folks um, like us who have PhDs, in my case, or you know, and are trained to work in technical spaces, we are encouraged, especially engineers, are encouraged to see the world through the lens of technical problems that need to be solved. And I think anyone who's done extensive coding, you know, computational coding, has had the experience of kind of disembodied um, reason, of becoming able to sort of disappear into the machine and, and spend hours doing this. That kind of disappearance is what success of the firm depends on, but it also results precisely in turning away from all the support workers that keep you going. And so it, 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 it's, it becomes almost futile. There's a sort of special cast of people who have special access to the special knowledge on which the society depends and all of the others are arrayed around them to support them, but they are, are not necessarily seen as fully human. And that I'm afraid is, is one of the conditions that you see all over the valley.
0: um you know you mentioned taking taking an uber or taking the bart forget either of those things Companies like Facebook and and, and Google have co- employee buses. They'll, so, if you work at Facebook and you live in San Francisco, you don't get on person on public transportation with the rest of the world. You get on the Facebook employee bus in the air conditioning with your Wi-Fi and your outlets, and you go right onto the Facebook or Google campus. And tell me if correct me, Fred, if I get any of this wrong. But then in those spaces are gyms and ways to get your hair cut and there can be medical treatment and all. So, so those places have become these worlds within a world that, that, can, that can obviate any of the kinds of interactions that we're talking about. It's exactly the opposite of wanting to go home with a person who waits on me at a restaurant or with the salesperson at Target. It's the opposite of that. So it, they, they are effectively discouraging a kind of community building from without 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 the walls of those companies by their workers, which is just another angle on what Fred was just saying, I think.
2: Yeah, I go even farther than that. And, and, and Mary Beth is exactly right. That's a perfect description of what I see here. You know, Facebook's headquarters, for example, is literally a town campus where you can go to restaurants for free and do all the things that Mary Beth just described. But the other thing that's important to know about the buses is that they depend on public infrastructure. You know, they've, struck, they've, struck, they've struck deals with public bus stops in San Francisco so that they're able to swing by and do essentially private drop-offs at public facilities. Much of, much, of, much of the tech world is derived from public investment. Don't even start with the internet. The history of the internet is the history of public investment in our infrastructure. And so, so it's not only that these are privatized worlds. It's that these are privatized worlds that live parasitically on public resources.
1: Um, I, I love uh, the, the, the cover of this book I feel like is actually very evocative I'm wondering uh, Mary Beth uh, if you could say a bit about who the, the subject is that is on the the cover of this book if, if it was your decision to to uh, put put this image uh, as the kind of image that would be presented to to the world of what this book uh, represents
0: sure so this image I told you earlier Matthew that sometimes people came to me through you know the workers union or through you uh, a story or an idea. And sometimes it's just that I get this punch in my solar plexus, like, oh my God, look at the light on that person or look at the expression on her face. or. And this was one of those evenings where I had finished, actually had finished work for the day. It had been a long day and I was headed home to my Airbnb and I stopped at a food truck to get some food. And I saw this woman working inside the truck and she just really struck me. There was something magnetic about her face and her, my interaction with her that really struck me. And so I had to have have this whole back and forth with myself about oh i'd rather you know should i go home and go to bed or should i push one more push for another hour and i and so i said you know i mean this is what i'm here to do so i said you know could i i'm this is what i'm doing i'm getting you know i'm taking my burrito out the window of the food truck and saying i'm Mary Beth and i'm doing this project could i come up in the truck and make a portrait of you i'll explain the whole thing <laughs> And so her name was Teresa and she talked to the boss and they brought me into the food truck. I had to climb up in through the door. And this is just a teeny little, you know, a tiny little alley, you know, at galley kitchen. You know what a food truck is like. It's just like a little trailer on the back of a, of a cab. And, um, and so she, and so we, I only had three or four frames with her And, you know, I just, I used the light available light that was in the truck. And we just had these few moments amid the buzz all around us. People are making food and passing it out the window and people are coming to the window and ordering. And then I went back to her house um, and she, you know, she had her daughters and her parents were here from Mexico. She hadn't seen them in something like 20 years because she'd been working in California and she hadn't gone back and forth to Mexico to see her family and so this picture in her gaze um, became one of our, you know, became one of our favorites. Her name is Teresa, and we, I mean, I wish you could see the notes that we took <laughs> when we were trying to decide which picture to, to put on the front of this book. And in fact, we published an edition of the book in France with a different with a different photograph. We we kept coming back to Teresa. And, I think one of the things we we wanted to not telegraph was that this book was only about um, workers, about service workers. We wanted this book to be about a real range of people. Uh, we, you know, it couldn't just be about the billionaires. It couldn't just be about the service workers. It had to have mid-le- mid-level engineers and people working in AI. And it had, in order to be credible, we felt that it really needed to encompass a lot of different experiences. But there was something about Teresa and the gaze and her purple glove that we just kept coming back to. And her expression just seemed to be inviting us to really look honestly at the space and yeah. the people and the place and what life was like. I don't know, I, Fred, I, what do you I really
2: to... agree. No, I think that was wonderful. And I, I would just add a couple things. things. what but, you know, Matthew, we had this strange experience when we first started doing this work. Um, you know, a, a fairly eminent sociologist who will go unnamed, um, we showed him the, the early work and he's, he's from around here. And he said, oh, that's not Silicon Valley. And we, and we were just kind of like, huh? He said, no, Silicon Valley is like, you know, tech bros and stuff, right? Burning Man. And and, and I was just like, whoa. And so, right. And, and this is from a guy who's pretty experienced in this space. And so, you know, I think with Teresa, we had this um, need to, to, to confront the myth directly. You know, the, the myth directly looks like Mark Zuckerberg, looks like Steve Jobs, looks like Elon Musk. With Teresa, you know, it's like, no, this is Silicon Valley. She's a woman. She's a woman of color. She's working her tail off inside this truck. She's an immigrant. And, you know, it's, it's, I think, a powerful contradiction to the the myth. The second thing that I think matters about the picture, and I I love photography, I've thought quite a bit about it, Mary Beth has a classical style. That portrait is is a portrait that, had it been done in oil, could appear in some ways on a Renaissance wall. There's something about her pose that is really classical she's really beautiful the proportions are amazing and one of the things that i love about the picture is it says not only is this valley not what you thought it was but the people in it who you have undervalued and not seen are are as valuable and as beautiful and as worthy of a Pietà as any other person in this valley Mm
0: -hmm. love it you never said that before (laughs) worthy of a Pietà. right on
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, exactly. but, it, it, but it's right, it's right. And, and and Matthew, I think this is something that's, that's been interesting for me in, in watching the response to the book, which has been much bigger than I would have ever guessed it would be. One of the things that I think people are are, are responding to is exactly this. The, 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 the way that Mary Beth's images witness and, and, and reveal a lot about the person, but in a way that also reveals their beauty and honors them. It's a kind of honorable witness. It's not simply seeing, it's seeing with care with the kind of care that communities get built on. And it's very distinct from the kinds of surveillance that are the normal way of looking around here. You know, where you're surveilling, you're targeting, you're looking to make a profit, you're looking to hustle. No, this is a kind of witnessing that's built around benevolent, civic, emotional connection.
0: Well, and I also hope, you know, I mean, and and I hope that it's also distinct from the kind of parachute journalism that has you know, come in and identified the homeless encampments by the freeway and the Teslas next to the trailers and those kinds of more, you know, those more sorts of salacious visual, visual moments in Silicon Valley. And that's why, again, you know, I mean, this book is really subtle in a way, you know, when we, when we get, and and that's why, I mean, I'm so grateful that readers are picking it up and sticking with it to the end because then you can talk to someone like Constance who's a teacher in Menlo Park who doesn't want to and she can tell you about how her life is impacted by a two and a half hour commute either way and why housing that's subsidized by Facebook really is a life changer for her and her daughters and you know I mean I think so there's There's a kind of subtlety that the time, you know, being able to to have the six weeks to be to to for for, to have Stanford support and Fred support to be able to be there and really take my time and to hear these stories is is why I think the book feels resonant to people that it is that there is a lot of subtlety there. Although Fred's right. We had very we had eminent thinkers in the beginning saying what if, what is this? You don't have Silicon Valley here. So I think that might be why it took a while for this book to take off but then once you know once it um, you know once University of Chicago made this beautiful this beautiful version and it's affordable, you know you could, we didn't want a big fancy c- coffee table book that was unaffordable. We wanted people to be able to hold it in their hands. I think you know I think that's why I think that's why it's resonating because there is something subtle about it and not just the parachute in and out.
1: You know, one of the photographs that actually most gave me most of of a visceral uh, reaction as I was thumbing through the book was the one that was the most classically, Silicon Valley, mythologically speaking, what you might expect, which is I, I think Warren is his name, yep. who, who is this this individual, you know, with this big backyard, huge backyard with a pool and the kids and the iPad and the laptop and this kind of mansion. And it's such a stark contrast to these, to these photos of these, you know, grocery store workers or, or working class people or people living in a trailer, which is what I was expecting based on the description of the book and based on the cover. I was expecting those kinds of photographs and felt moved by those photographs. And then you turn the page, and all of a sudden, it's this, you know, kind of rich guy. And and I, I don't know exactly how to describe the feeling that 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 that, that gave for me. But it was the, the contrast between that just really felt very stark. I'm curious. Um, yeah, Mary I, Beth if, Or afraid if there, if that was a conscious decision to kind of put this this that photograph right there where it was. Uh, and, and yeah, thinking of.
0: Well, for sure, the, con- the definitely the contrast, but 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 more than that, what I what I loved about Warren was that he is exactly the kind of person you know, the high school valedictorian in the '80s, the brilliant guy from the Midwest who has great intentions and goes to Silicon Valley and does it, you know, and does his MBA and. Does really really well and loves Silicon Valley and loves what it offers and has been able to do things with his mind and his ingenuity that he wouldn't have been able to do anywhere else in the world. And yet he can still say, "I don't need my, I can't my, I don't want my company to grow any bigger than it is." I mean, of course, he would love everybody would love the kind of success. But what he, what he's able to articulate is that in order to be as big as some of these country companies, you need to cross some ethical lines, and he's able to spell out those ethical lines for me with great passion. I mean he he pounded the table when he said they're below the line. And so he, you know, he so so there's this kind of moral awareness for the for the people who are not struggling economically or physically, there's still a kind of existential moral awareness of what happens in the valley to to create that kind of wealth. I also and think I was, there's
2: a Go ahead. Yeah,
0: Go ahead no, no no no, just that I was grateful. I mean, I feel that the people in the book were so honest with me about those ambiguities. And that's and you know, and so those collaborations really contributed to the to the book's strength too is that people really were like Erfan is able to say, you know, we got all the way here from Iran and my we my husband works at Google and everyone at home thinks we're rich, but I don't know if it's worth it. So just the fact that people were able to share that kind of vulnerability with me, were willing to go into that relationship with me and share that kind of stuff, I think is what another thing that's is, um, you know, that I'm grateful for to them and that I think is, is ringing true for, for readers.
2: I think that's right. And I, I, I want to return to the, the picture of Warren because um, that was an alternative image potentially for the cover, um, especially when we yeah, were con- right. especially when we were concerned that that folks were not recognizing the Silicon Valley that we were seeing. But the interesting thing about the Warren picture for, for me, Matthew, is the way that, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shot where there are five or six people on their laptops, each in their own individual space across this beautiful lawn and near a pool. They're all communicating, but not with each other. They're communicating through That's their gorgeous. devices. Yeah. Wor- yeah, right. Well, and they're communicating through their devices with systems that are far away. And for me, that has been a kind of classic representation of the kind of society that, that Silicon Valley engineering is building. It's building a society in which we have appliances that connect us to central hubs and leave us almost unable to talk to each other. It's as though we're all always on the phone instead of like being in the room together. And so I, I've always loved the picture for that. And in that respect, I think that Warren actually has a lot in common with Erfan or with other people in the book. He experiences or seems to experience, at least in that image, an, an individuation and an anonymity a kind of um, separation from others while even being in kind of constant contact with them that renders some parts of his being a person invisible too. And and I think that's really interesting. So I, I think one of the things that's, that's a theme in the book is that the anxiety and the visibility issues go all the way up in different ways.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. I, I want to talk about one more subject in the book I, I i mean listen we could do this all day but um mark um was a really yeah. interesting mm. person uh, for a number of reasons including you mentioned uh fred in in your essay at the beginning of this book and in this interview you spoke about kind of the environmental impacts of a lot of silicon valley and um well maybe 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 Mary Beth, you can you can describe uh who who mark was and what that conversation was like
0: Right. So, um, Lenny Siegel, who was the mayor of Mountain View, um, right, Fred, he was the uh, mayor. Yeah, he, was,
2: he was on the city council. City I
0: council guess he, was, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: he introduced me to a lawyer named Amanda Hawes, who was based in San Jose, who had done a lot of work with women who were in the electronics industry in the eighties, who had children who were born with birth defects. And so Yvette, Mark's mother, had been driving around in her car and she heard an ad on the car radio that said, you know, are you a woman who from these years worked in the electronics industry? Did you have a do you have a baby who matches the this these physical these descriptions of these having had these um, physical challenges? And she heard her baby Mark being described and she called this phone number and she joined With this lawyer who was filing suit against these corporations, because these women were working, they were they were uh, heating lead to high temperatures in order to be able to fuse pieces of glass to make lasers, the kinds of lasers that your groceries beep beep, you know, when you go to through the grocery line, they goes beep. So you know, lead has been known since the time of the ancient Romans to cause birth defects, but nonetheless, there she was with a blowtorch. Um, working with lead while she was pregnant, and she'd had a miscarriage, and she had this baby named Mark. And so, through Lenny Siegel and through the lawyer, I met Yvette and Mark, and uh, spent a lot of time with them and photographed them, and um, we went to dinner. In fact, I just talked to them on the phone last week. They call. They call. They stay in touch, and people have been seeing the book and the press. But so this that what's on the ground, the pollution that's underground is actually manifested in the bodies of many of the humans who are walking around on that landscape now. And that what Amanda Haas would say is that there's a whole generation of children and mothers who's, who worked in this industry, who are suffering these kinds of problems, and who now, you know, that these problems would be would be seen in Asia and the places to which so much of this manufacturing, manufacturing has been been offloaded, you know, these other other companies, uh, countries, that this manufacturing isn't happening in the U.S. anymore, but it's still happening, and it's happening in countries without the kind of regulation that could protect women from from harm.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that's strange if you live here is, um, you know, on the one hand, the the landscape is totally beautiful. There are beautiful flowers everywhere, there's grass, there's blue sky. But underneath that landscape, there are more Superfund sites um, in Santa Clara County than in any other county in America. A Superfund site is a site of excessive pollution where the company that that did the polluting is no longer able to clean it up and the the government has become responsible for it. When you buy a house in Silicon Valley, one of the first things you do is you get yourself a copy of the Superfund pollution site's map to make sure that you're not buying near a toxic plume. Here in Mountain View, where I live, um, there there are a series of former factories. Um, One of them used TCE, which is an electronic solvent. It's a, a, a kind of cleaning solvent. And it it has gotten into the groundwater, and it flows through the ground. And here's the fun fun part. In part of town, you can buy a house with what is advertised as an above-ground basement. The above-ground basement is basically kind of like a five-foot-high crawl space, and it's sold as a benefit with the house. Well, the reason you have that five-foot-high crawl space is because there's TCE underground underneath your house, and it comes up as a gas through the ground. And by the time it reaches about three feet, it is diffuse enough in the air to no longer trigger um, uh, the, the, the law. It's, it's no longer illegal. It's no longer an illegal amount. It's just an amount. So your above-ground basement is actually, in reality, insulation from below-ground pollution. And in some ways, I think, you know, this, this fantasy that Silicon Valley is, is the Zuckerbergs and the jobs is also a kind of ideological insulation, Against the story of what's actually going on here, the fact that this is an industrial space, and now that we've offshored it, as Mary Beth has said, you know, Silicon Valley is no longer a manufacturing place. It's really a design and 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 um, administration place. Now that that's the case, we've rendered the kinds of pollution, the kinds of suffering that Mark represents, utterly invisible. We sent them to China.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this discussion is reminding me of some, <coughs> you know, previous research I did on the history of nuclear weapons in particular, I I did a trip to Los Alamos, New Mexico Mm -hmm. where the so much nuclear research took place and obviously a lot of, um, you know, radioactive, harmful, hazardous materials, similarly to what you're describing in, in Silicon Valley, are still kind of affecting the, the natural ecosystem to this day. Also, a very beautiful, naturally beautiful area. But what happens is, you know, all the scientists came in, built these <laughs> built these technologies, left the kind of um, hazardous waste behind, and then left. And then, similarly, uh, um, many documented cases of of miscarriage in that in that region um, as well. So, I mean, you know, th- this story is like a tale as old as I don't know large scale technological industrial um manufacturing I, I wonder as we come to a close here whether we can pivot to to any anything uh, slight, slightly more um, uh, hopeful um I guess I guess um, w- what I'd love each of you to reflect on is how moving forward we imp- I mean speaking for myself and my peers as, as young people many of whom are work you know going to work in the tech industry what could, what can each of us do to be, I, I guess as individuals stay, you know, um, mindful of the types of changes that are that have already kind of happened in in the United States and that you're documenting in this book, and uh, w- where are we going from here? Is there is there any is there any light <laughs> um, beyond the, the 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 strength and the resilience and the beauty that that as you mentioned you're documenting in these subjects, but at the more kind of structural level, um, yeah, are we are we moving anywhere anywhere? positive? Uh, do you feel like the increased awareness with books like yours is, is having a positive impact?
2: I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but Mary Beth, do you want to go?
0: <laughs> no, I want to hear what you want to say. First. Okay. Okay. So I have a couple
2: of thoughts. Um, first, I, I think we're trying really hard simply to literally make things visible, to actually let people see who's here and to see what the community looks like on the ground. Because without that, you can't even begin to have a discussion about the kind of community and the kind of society that you really want to have. I think that one of the challenges um, for for young folks raised in the highly individualistic, media-saturated worlds that we inhabit is working to turn away from the presentation of self, the presentation of one's image, one's Instagram feed, and back toward people who are unlike yourself. And to do that, you have to stop believing that personal expression alone is a sufficient ground for building a good society. And this this cuts even to, to identity politics in places that Mary Beth and I probably disagree about. But I think that presenting yourself as the member of a tribe may be true to your authentic interior experience. But if you do that and do that alone and do that only, then it's very difficult to build common cause with other tribes. And if our society is fracturing in part thanks to the work of social media, digital media technologies and Silicon Valley itself, then the work of those of us who who live here and live in America is to turn away from that fracture, turn toward one another in our embodied on the ground lives, and then work toward the business of of governing ourselves, collaborating, building the kind of society that we want to live in. Not just the kind of technologies. We need to turn away from this idea that if I just get my benefits, if I just get my salary, if I just make that product, the world will be improved. That's not true. The world gets better when you do things with your neighbors.
0: Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I would also add something that's sort of way above all of us, which is to really look at if, it, I mean, I think that, you know, the business roundtable and the sharehold, this idea that corporations, are they only responsible to their shareholders or are they also supposed yeah. to be responsible for something that's ineffable, ineffable like community health, and something that's hard to put your finger on, like community health. And I think, I really believe that we're in this sort of robber baron age of community breakdown amid all of this wealth. I mean, just in the last week, this news about Bezos and, uh, you know, they're paying less less in income taxes because of the way the tax code is written, because of the way they, if you sell stock, you don't have to, you know, you know, you, you know, you can go to the bank and get a loan because you're Jeff Bezos and never pay income tax on that money. I mean, I think that it feels like we're at a breaking point. And so the question to me is whether the country has the political will, to demand that these corporations take a look at the communities that they're serving that are serving them as fred is saying the infrastructure the public infrastructure that these corporations are using the labor force people's human lives finite bodies and lives and what their responsibility is to those to those to those people and to restructure the economy in a way where everyone can benefit i mean it sounds pie in the sky but i don't see any other I don't see any other recourse there. You know, if you if you go to Europe, it's not like this. It doesn't have to be like this. The economy the, the economy has not been granted to us from on high. The economy is something that white men have built to enrich themselves. And it can be changed. Laws can be changed and priorities can be shifted. But it takes a lot of will on the part of the people who are in in the resistance. I, really- so, I hope this book can be part of that resistance, that it's a document that shows that, you know, what is being claimed about the boats all floating is, is a fiction.
2: I really agree. And I just want to hammer home the point that politics is ultimately the answer, but we have to be the people doing politics. One of the fantasies that Silicon Valley sells us is that by speaking together online, we are somehow doing oh, yeah. Politics. And, you know, the, are <laughs> politics. Yeah, yeah. and this, this this performance of politics is not going to change things. And that's, that's right. a habit that I think younger folks in particular God. have been raised on. We've got to do old school politics. I mean, Mary Beth and I have both been to city council meetings and seen the, in, the impact that industries here have on the way that our communities are built through those meetings. Those are the fights we've got to start fighting.
0: You're right about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's, a, that's a great place to close. And this book is the, you know, the, the, the epitome of, you know, is the opposite of tweeting. This is seeing people face to face, looking them in the eyes, hearing their stories, you know, engaging with, with what's really going on um, in, in Silicon Valley and in much of the country. And well, f- thank you both for this, this, this project, uh, for, for, for taking this on, for taking these photographs, for writing these, these essays, for doing this work. I, I, I appreciated it and enjoyed the book, uh, when I read it a couple of days ago, but after speaking with you both, my, my, I feel like my, my understanding and the, the amount of ideas and the amount of thought that went into it really, uh, is, 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 is is driven home by, by hearing the way you two speak about it. So thank you so much for, for, for speaking with me. Um, yeah, I just just really appreciate the work you're doing.
2: Well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it.
0: Matthew, thank you for having us. And thank you for sharing your experience there and for encouraging your readers to take a look at the book. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Right on. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye.